Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Tom Horton, the Honourable Tom Horton, and we spoke about everything from English parents sending their children to boarding school at age six and the implications of that both for individuals and for society. We also spoke about uh, living in the shadow of an extremely successful father and carving your own niche, as well as a whole bunch of other things as these conversations tend to go. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with Tom. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I am in Edinburgh, and here is an update on plugging things. It'll probably take about a minute and a half to two minutes if you want to skip ahead. First of all, Mythos 8.45 at the Gilded Balloon. Tonight I have uh, judges in from the Comedy Awards, which is always mildly nerve-wracking. If they come once, it's a good thing. If they come again, it's a better thing, etc., etc. Secondly, uh, Savage at the on the 10th of September in Melbourne, I will be filming Savage for something that I think is going to be like quite a big deal. I can't um, say the details yet, but it's it's if you are in Melbourne, please come. If you're in Melbourne and a, a Patreon subscriber, I will get you in for free. If you are in Melbourne and an artist, I will get you in for free. It's a 600-seater room. It is a massive deal, please. If you liked Savage as a podcast, if you liked Savage as a live show, if you would like to come and support me uh, in Melbourne on the 10th of September at the Malthouse Theatre, please um, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com, or tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, or hit me up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash alicefraser. If you are a Patreon at any level, including a dollar a month, I will give you a free ticket to this show, because I would like you there if you like what I do. Um, Other than that, um, very excitingly, a fantasy original series that I have written um, has been picked up for a pilot. More details on that to follow as they emerge. Things this year seem to be easier for me than they have been for a while. I will let you get on with listening to the podcast. Um, I'll see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. So who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Tom Horton. I'm drinking peppermint and licorice herbal tea. And why are you drinking peppermint and licorice herbal tea? Because... These are ginger, by the way, if you want. Oh, these... A ginger. Oh, nice. Of some sort. I will have that. Double strength ginger as well. Yeah. It's um, because my voice is a bit raspy today. I've been exercising a lot. I mean, it's shouting in loud places. I find. Yes. Throughout the entire festival, just going, networking in bars. Oh, I'm so, I haven't done any of that yet, and I'm really bad at it. So you're quite happy that you haven't done any? Well, I am first and second order desires. I know I should want to Mm -hmm. do it more than I do, but I don't really want to do it. But I feel disappointed in myself that I haven't been doing it. Yeah. But that's why you sound a lot healthier than I do. Yes. Possibly. I, uh, I, was, I was always told when I first started Edinburgh that like, the, the social side is the biggest show you play up here. Yes, that is 100% <laughs> true. I, I always give myself the first week off. Yeah, fair. And at this point it's now exactly a week in, so I have no excuses left. You've done extra shows though. The I board have. game Smackdown we did. Yes, I've been doing lots of promo spots. That is the thing, but I haven't been to a... I haven't even collected my festival pass. I haven't been to a single after bar situation yet right well not much has changed it's exactly the same as all the other years it is uh, (laughs) 
It's an interesting game to play. What have you been wrestling with recently or thinking about outside of your show? Outside of my show? Ooh. Um, or inside of your show. Whatever. You know what? I'm, I'm about to become an, un- an uncle. Oh. Which is exciting. That is exciting. So my, my sister um, is due in, in October... And it's the first time that sort of there's been a generation down in the immediate family. Uh-huh. So there's sort of a real direct responsibility to a younger kid. Yeah. So that's quite nice as far as just sort of evaluating then where I am in life. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. It's coming up on a year of uh, October from my twin brother having a baby. So, how did you feel? I mean, I love it. I love the baby, I love my brother, I, um, I've always been a big fan of babies. Uh, children, less so. Excuse me. That's all right, you're allowed to talk. This child might not have an uncle if I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing. I feel like you worry about them a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You feel some sense of responsibility to them that you may or may not be able to actualise. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I'm just, I'm really, I really want to be a part of their life. Mm. I don't, and sort of, it's now come at a time where I, now I'm three years after leaving the group I was in to now be a solo traveling comedian. Yeah. I'm doing, going around the world and everything, blah, blah, blah. But actually now this has made me go, oh, I really want to go back to home and really just invest a decent amount of time. Because, I mean, I don't know when I'm going to have a kid, mm. or if I ever do, mm. but this one... And also, the uncle role's a really fun role to play, because there's, like, not much responsibility. It should be mainly fun. The way I think about the duty of the uncle or aunt is you be the person who they run away from home to. Yes, If right, they ever yeah. run away from home, you have to have built a good enough relationship and an open enough relationship and a non-judgmental enough relationship with them mm-hmm. that you're the person they go to if they find themselves in trouble. Right. Did you have that with your uncles and aunts? I did to a certain extent. Um, when I was younger, certainly, I think so. Not that I was ever a rebel or a runaway or a... But, um, when I was younger, they were certainly that. As I got older, once you become an adult, those people in your life start to become people uh-huh. in a way that they weren't before, and you can see them for their flaws. And oh, yeah. Sometimes those flaws are forgivable, and sometimes they're not so forgivable. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So that's always interesting, that process of... I don't know, maybe I came to it late of seeing particularly my parents as people... Or I came yeah. to it from an odd angle because mum was sick. So we never had that teen rebellion, this is who I am. It was always a matter of... She, Yeah, that's... I don't know the ins and outs of your mum's illness, but if it's quite a severe illness that a parent is dealing with early on, then... Yeah, that's... Um, I can imagine that's such a sort of extreme situation they're in that that can't really get turned on its head in the way that oh you're like so my my father being the head of the British Armed Forces (laughs) 
was such a cartoon character of a strong guy. Yes. And then when you get to that stage, you go, oh, no, he is vulnerable and he, has, he does make mistakes and that sort of stuff. There isn't sort of... Did you feel... Uh, did you go through a rebellious phase? Very much so. Because he was so much the figurative patriarch. I think because the situations I just found myself in, I moved 18 different times before I was 20. And a lot of that was spent on army barracks. So sectioned off. Behind, literally behind 20 foot fences. Then when I wasn't there to give me geographical consistency, they'd sent me to all boys boarding school at six years old. So again, a sectioned off again. And so I think if you live your life in these sort of regimented, very tightly compact areas, when you then, when I went on my gap year, I just went insane. You were wild. I went wild. And then I went to university and all my acne and braces fell off and I started looking not like a nerd. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I rebelled against the... I think also having an ultra-successful parent. It's, sort of, it's a tough sob story to, to sell, but that, that, that pressure of then sort of, how do I surpass that person? I'm always going to be their son rather than my own person. Yes, and, it, and you sort of chose by going down a completely different route. Comedy and performing. Because now I could, I've chiselled a career that is definitely just mine yeah I think going into the military would have been a night without well, a bit of death sentence that would have been awful yeah um, but even going into like the city and just doing a normal job it has been another real sort of I'm just a brick in the wall and I'm well there is this mo- thing about the structure of corporations uh, mm-hmm. that when I was working at a big investment bank someone came in and gave a lecture on it the premise of the lecture was um, that the structure of the corporation comes directly from the structure of the army which is one of the reasons why capitalism isn't doesn't function hugely well in sort of a peacetime vibe. That kind of direct linear hierarchy, vertical mm-hmm. hierarchy, works well in situations of high stress. Mm-hmm. But flat hierarchies, sort of more communal ways of operating, are actually better for peacetime. So if you have a hierarchical corporation structure, it what it needs is for everyone in it to feel like they are under threat at all times for it to mm. function. And so they end up being these very high-stress, high-pressure environments. Right. A peacetime army is not a good thing. Right, uh, yeah, sure. For any kind of nation. So you either need to present these artificial threats or internal sets of stress and pressure so that mm. it actually functions in this vertical way. Yeah, okay. Whereas, you know, peacetime more communal management tends to work better because you have time to have long discussions about things and work out compromises rather than... Rather than, no, we need to go tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise we're all going to die. Yeah, and so you have this sort of fake life and death environment inside corporations. I don't know if you've ever worked in a corporation, but it does feel like that and this threat of being fired or the threat of the disapproval of the partners or the senior managers becomes so overblown Mm. and so unpleasant that people get themselves into real trouble psychologically speaking absolutely i mean i have never properly operated in one of those but the majority of my friends from boarding school public school are in that Mm. and it's also it's sort of a natural progression from being in that boarding school environment where again there's definitely a hierarchy and you're constantly aware of 
where you stand in it. So, and that sort of that that instant gets installed in you. That sort of win at all costs. You must. You can't show weakness. Emotions don't fly. It's it's a real. And in and winning is dictated by an external measurement. Yeah, a lot of it's sort of status symbols. You know how much money you have, how many bonuses you have, what car you drive, what you you know you've seen American Psycho when they're all comparing their business cards and what font is right and what quality of paper it is. It's really down to that level. I mean, to me, I'm I'm hoping this doesn't come across as offensive. My grandmother, who was Hungarian and Jewish, used to laugh about the British not being able to understand food. There was that stereotype that British food is bad food. And her explanation was they send their children off to boarding school so they never learn what it is to eat with the family. They never learn how to cook. They never learn... They never Mm. learn these luxuries. They go into these institutions and they become sort of pathologized and institutionalized rather than having the the comfort of a family. Yeah. And I believed that growing up because someone told me it and I was like, oh, yeah, it is a crazy thing to do. Do you feel like it was a crazy or pathological thing to do or do you think it was fine? No, I think it's a very damaging thing to do. Mm. Um, I Firstly, I think you've got to think of the motivation of the parents for wanting to do it. Mm. Most of the time, the motivation is positive it's because they want to give the kid the best start in life and they think that sending them to one of these schools I'm talking let's talk specifically about boarding because I think that's that's what we're going about um they it's sort of we love our tradition in England and that is traditionally how the top uh leaders have been educated and you become part of a club you get not only the best education, but you also get to the best contacts because you're then with all those people. There is definitely a problem with it in that a school like that can provide you with the best sports facilities, the best food, or well, it can't give you love. And part of the family environment and eating together and that sharing around a table is what is missing. That's what, that's a real fundamental part of growing up. Whereas if you're sort of just, yeah, I remember having to sit in silence until the bell rang and then you'd indicate what measurement of food you wanted via a hand signal <sighs> to a teacher down. So yeah, it was like, if you didn't do anything, you got a large because they wanted to feed you up if you, if you put your hand out flat that was a medium portion and like the okay sign that meant a small portion and so that's how we indicated how much food we wanted and then we'd then eat until the bell went we'd go silent we'd say our prayers and then go to church we go to it's, it was a real militant way of doing it yeah and that is obviously it sounds odd but when you're in it you don't realise it's odd yeah because everyone's doing it but then when you go out and people go that is very strange I think also that environment of the all boys boarding is um I think you have to you have to sort of bury your emotions as a survival tactic especially when 6 7 um if you cry I think part of it is you 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 signal to the other boys that that we're all in a sad situation and that reminds them so they want you to stop it, to stop, you know, to get through it. You, they don't want people to all be reminded. 
And yeah. then you learn very quickly to then sort of put those emotions down, which then goes into this very cutthroat, win-at-all-cost sort of mentality that then produces some of the leaders that we have. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting way to put it. It's something that I've been thinking of in another forum, this idea that people don't like to be reminded of unpleasant situations that can't yeah. be changed. I think that my theory is that that's what a lot of this um, word policing is kind of about. Right, okay. It's the idea that if you change the reminder... So any word is not anything. It's just a word. It can sure. mean different things in different languages and different things in different contexts. Right, yeah. Your yeah. best friend could call you asshole, and what he means is I love you. Right. But if a stranger calls you that, then it's something completely different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the word isn't anything. The word is only a reminder that there is an inequality in the world. Right. It's only like calling someone fat is only offensive if being fat is a bad thing in the society. Sure. Right. Otherwise, it's just a. If it's a ph. Yeah. At though, it's then that's the. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a fat beat, then that's suddenly an amazing thing, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. It's not the word itself; it's it's the reminder. Any more than saying someone is blonde or curly haired is anything. And does the reminder come with the motivation of how you've said it? I guess. Or? Well, it depends then, because you can't determine subjective intent, and because nowadays no word is ever said to an individual; it is has any word is potentially said to the whole world. Hmm. Uh, the reminder then is of this state in the world of an inequality. And so they're like, stop the reminder. And in your case, stop the crying. We don't want to be reminded that we're miserable. Yeah, right. And taking the crying away doesn't make you any less miserable. No, right. It just makes you think about how miserable you are somewhat less. And and then is that... Beneficial, though, you know, the, the stoicism of just sort of cutting the emotions away. Do you think it's actually better to be reminded occasionally, or hiding it is is? Pro- I mean, I don't know the answer there. I think there's there's both. I think really. you've got to tackle it at some point, don't you? Because if you just didn't show it down, show it down, show it down, it will eventually sort of burst out in burst weird out. ways and yeah, distorted you're, you're, sort of perverted you're, ways yeah you'll yeah. find yourself at 50 years old shouting at your child yeah punching your <laughs> yeah, toaster yeah exactly and it's like oh well, that's probably wrong yeah I think I think there's a balance I think that on one hand um never talking about feelings and obviously mm-hmm. my entire career is predicated on this never talking about the untalkaboutable makes it worse it mm-hmm. toxifies it it is you know, the pus builds up inside a boil, as it were, as an analogy. Right. It, it creates a pressure system that then splurts out in other weird, unpleasant I, ways. I actually, yeah, I actually, I find talking about these sort of things easier on a stage or even in, like, on a podcast. But in a performative on, way. Yeah, I think so. In an artificially set up environment, whereas if it's just me and my girlfriend and she's asking about stuff, it, it, I... It really freaks me out. It becomes too real. Yeah, it's a, it's a. And I'm not in control. Like, there's no, there's no structure to sort of play off. Certainly on stage, it feels like when you talk about these things, the nature of talking about them on stage is a form of control of those things. Yeah. Even though, even though you're it is con- actually a metaphor, you're talking about them. You're dealing with them. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in a metaphorical way, it's a powerful metaphor that makes you feel as though you have control. Yeah. And in effect, all of our brain is a metaphor anyway, so mm-hmm. you are actually you know, doing this controlled bleed. Mm-hmm. I think, on the other hand, that talking about it too much, indulging yourself in it, wallowing in it... That's what wallowing is, yeah, absolutely. Is, ...is the equivalent of, say, you had this infected pus wound and you pop it open, but then you just keep picking at it. Right. There's a middle ground, I think, where you let it out and then you cover it until it heals a bit and then you have yeah. another look at it, maybe disinfect it a bit, then you cover it up a bit. I, that's, yeah. that's my feeling about it. I think that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Because you see people who are like, oh, no, you've got to express your anger. And what that ends up doing is cultivating anger. Mm-hmm. They just find it easier and easier to express anger and then everything becomes angering. Yeah. And then their, go- yeah, their go-to thing is, oh, I shout at... Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm a believer in, like, small doses of re- repression when appropriate. <laughs> Sometimes your feelings aren't the most important thing in a situation. Yeah, totally. And you can calm down and not, you know, the people who approach any situation with their own analysis and psychoanalysis and self-reflection. Yeah, it's also sort of those sort of, they're like dementors. You know, they sort of sap the energy for the room and just make it, they they dictate the energy of the room just by how they're feeling. And they're, they're exhausting people to be around. Yes. Yeah, there needs to be some subjugation of self in a society. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we're necessarily very good at that anymore, if we ever were. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I, I, I think, do you think people, people aren't very good at uh, keeping a lid on it for a little bit. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think nowadays not so much. I think, yeah, maybe I think people are very, very concerned with how they're perceived a lot more now because we are advertising ourselves more than we ever have before. Yeah, I mean... And way... actually, arguably, I'd say people... I mean, this... this I've got no basis on this, but it feels like there'll be a lot of, lot of people out there who actually their interactions with other people aren't in the face-to-face here and now, and it's more as they're sort of the products they're selling... They're, they're showing themselves on so on online and social media and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing if you ever go back and look at old news clips from oh. say the 40s and 50s and 60s even into the 70s. The way that people talk on camera, normal people on the street, the vox pops is so awkward. And it looks self-conscious, but what it is is actually unself-conscious. They don't know how a camera is picking them up. They don't know how they're perceived. Nowadays, right. if you see a Vox Pop, someone's doing their best angle, they know how they look, they're delivering it in a way, yeah, they're yeah. familiar with the language of the screen and the way that the screen translates the self. I saw these, yeah, I saw these two girls uh, the other day and they were walking out, they were like full makeup and they had like white bits on all the sort of contours and edges of their face. And Highlighting. Like, that looks mental. And then, and my girlfriend was like, yeah, that's for the Instagram photos. So that in photos, it looks like it's sort of pinging off. It's like, but in real life, that looks, me- that looks awful. Yeah. She's like, yeah, but they're less concerned with that and more concerned with how they look in the, in the. Well, you see that with the particular forms of plastic surgery or non-plastic surgery, non-invasive, basically injectables, oh. where it will look extremely good from one angle. Right. So those lips, the overinflated lips, will look 
good from one angle or those uh, the cheek implants, which look good yeah. when your face is still, but the moment you start to move, the musculature of your face is a very subtle thing that we're all very familiar with. And the moment their faces move, it looks like there are lumps moving under the skin because we yeah. understand... Because there are lumps under the skin. <laughs> there are lumps under the skin and the muscles yeah, are not yeah. moving in the ways that we're familiar with. It goes into uncanny valley very quickly and it becomes yeah. quite creepy. But for them, it's all about that one captured moment and their face is a form of... Art, maybe, maybe art. Art is generous, but a form of something over which they have control. I, I, I still think the word product is more. Yeah, product, maybe. They are the products, and that's what you're saying. Yeah. And, and then. The brand. This, yeah, this comes back to something I was talking about last week, which is that we don't have a free marketplace of ideas. All of those things are dictated by. The fact that you can't make money off social media except through advertising. So social media then, in order to propagate its financial support base, encourages advertising through these algorithms and through these processes. And so everyone is encouraged, if they want to play this social media game, if they want to score the points, to invest in advertising themselves as a brand to get to the point where they'll be paid to advertise on the platform, all of that stuff, it's all about attention and eyeballs, but it's not, the algorithms don't promote merit or interest or depth or sadness or, they they promote extremes of emotion presented in a beautiful way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's been, people are cottoning on to that though. So I, I don't like read a lot of bloggers and that sort of stuff, my girlfriend reads a lot and people are now aware of the sort of the falseness of it all I don't well at least she is and there is becoming a more trend of people who are trying to look real on Instagram and that's now the new thing oh my god she's so real and she takes these photos which aren't posed but that's no, a form of that's, that's, a, that's, that's exactly what I said as I no, I don't buy into that that is that is just another way of being false by pretending to be more real and she's like, no, what are you on about? She's put rolls on her skin. I'm like, yeah, but that's how she's getting you. Yeah. Like, they just, I don't think you can ever not have a filter of slight calculatedness when you We've gotten to the point now where I, in my show, I'm sort of, I say a few things that I say deliberately to be shocking. Yeah. And one of the things is I don't love my body. Right. And... Like, it's fine. I'm fine with it. But I don't Instagram love it. Because mm. now there's this awareness of the tools that have been used to repress us or shape us or shift us around in the past. And one of those things is you've got to be beautiful. And the rebellion against that is you've got to feel beautiful no matter how you look. You don't have to sublimate yourself to these body yeah. positive... It is weird, isn't it? These sort of... Um, you, they're giving you all these products to help you fix your what's wrong is it like you have to love your body because it's wrong (laughs) is what they're saying really isn't it that there's a form of loving your body so that then that becomes commodified in itself so you don't have to try to make your body something else Mm -hmm. because it's been realized that that's unattainable so you lose a market segment there people who realize they're never going to be like a supermodel and so making them feel guilty for not being a supermodel is worn off no one feels guilty for not looking like a supermodel anymore. No. 
beyond a certain age or beyond a certain amount of exposure. So now what you want is to get those people to buy your product. Yeah. How do you do it? You get them to acknowledge that they're not a supermodel and then you make them feel like they can buy something to celebrate the fact that they're not a supermodel. Right, sure. So yeah. whether it's, you know, a T-shirt or stockings or leggings or deliberately non-shapewear or yeah. uh, multicoloured T-shirts that aren't flattering to the foot. Like all of these things are marketing. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel as far as body... So how they will celebrate some types of body shapes and other types so the idea that you could have a a, a larger obese person and that's very sort of oh they're very brave they're very proud they, they love their body but if you had an anorexic person on the same sort of ma- magazine front cover that would be scorned yeah i mean that's fashion right body fashion and 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 discourse i think i think there's a sort of a commodification of rebellion at the moment that is happening. In the same way as you saw feminism become packaged and commodified as shoulder pads and power heels and bright red lipstick, you're now seeing people who either can't or won't conform to traditional body standards of beauty being packaged being packaged, yeah. Okay. Becoming a product. And whether that is a reflection of the fact that demographically people are getting bigger and so they want to capture that market segment. Which I think they are, aren't they? I think I, yeah. I've, that's, a, that's some stat I heard somewhere that people are getting on the whole millennials are the yeah, large they've been. For sure. People are less active. People are playing outdoors less, particularly children. Uh, there's more than 50%, I think, in the UK, Australia, and maybe not Australia, but certainly there's... Big people as a market segment are growing as well as people are, People who are big are bigger than people who were big would have been. So, like, 1930s big is small compared to 2019 right. big. Yeah, okay. So these people, whether they choose to be big, are happy with being big, are miserable with being big, they exist as a big market segment. So how yeah. do you capture that? You capture the diet market, the people who want to lose weight... That's people are all over that. They've been over that for years. Yes, yeah. that's tapped out, kind of. But then also the people who are celebrating being that way, and you go, yeah, it's okay. And then you sell that as the yeah. So then you have your Tess Holidays, and you know Sophie Hagen, who's very much for body positivity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you know I feel conflicted about that. Really, I think it's a really nice thing to talk about. I think it's a really nice thing to say how big I am doesn't affect my value as a human. I think that's such an important thing to say. It is. It's, I think, I think do, is, does the conflict there come from being how big I, you are shouldn't affect how much value you feel as a human, but you can't ignore health implications. And if you're peddling, you can't then peddle a message saying, um, you, um, not warning about the ramifications that come with... Well, this is the other thing. As um, someone who is in and out of hospitals, the bigger you are, the harder it it is for a hospital to deal with you. Right. And whether that's a lack of facilities and resources that should be fixed or whether it's, you know, the fact that surgery is more difficult because the bigger you are, the more room for variation there is in your organ placement... Right. Um, yeah, it's I mean, literally that sort of... So that sort of thing, when it comes down to that kind of technical level, 
I think the problem is that people who are genuinely concerned about health are often um, shouted over by the people who are using a faked concern about health to make big people feel bad about themselves. Yeah, I can see that. So if somebody goes, I'm only worried about your health, they might be saying, I'm genuinely worried about your health, or they might be saying you're a fat monster and you don't deserve to live. And I think there's so much negativity that positivity feels like a rebellious step. To love your body feels like you are rejecting some oppressor. And that's a hard thing to do. That's, you know, you went out into the world rebelling from your dad, dominant, lovely though he may be, your dominant dad, and you went out and I'm sure you did things that were bad for you. Oh, I have been sort of self-destructing my body in ways for a long time, of course. Yeah, and you probably knew they were bad for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, How would you have reacted if someone... If your dad had told you that they were bad for you? Um, I would have probably said, I know. Yeah. And then carried on doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that is literally, I think, what... I've had a lot of people who, yeah, when I've sort of struggled with, you know, drinking or drugs or smoking, that sort of thing, over the, over the years. And you know the health implications there's something very odd about the human beings and our sort of enjoyment of poisoning ourselves in order to feel alive. I do feel it's something about like sort of taking death into your own hands because it feels like you're in control of the damage, so you're dictating how your life... It, it's something to do with that, in my head anyway. Yeah. Um yeah, how much of that is kind of a post hoc rationalization of a compulsion and how much of it is a deliberate choice, though? Right. Are you talking about now like, how it then sort of like a. With well, everything. I don't know. I never know. I never know where, why I'm doing anything. Mm. If I'm doing it for the reasons that I think I'm doing it or if I'm just making excuses because I have no choice but to do it. Uh huh. That kind of. I certainly think a lot of my sort of. a few of my vices, a lot of them have just been so connected with how I socially interact. You know, drinking is the classic one, but in Edinburgh, the idea of not drinking throughout Edinburgh just seems impossible to me, and it shouldn't be, because why? But... And also, I think... a per- Something about my... And this goes in hand-in-hand hand with... Um, how I've struggled with... So I'm, I'm in a relationship at the moment for the first time ever. Two years, and it's my record by two years. <laughs> but being single became such a part of my personality that I was petrified to not be single. And like drinking, I think, was the same. I'm petrified to say, oh, what do you want to drink? I'll just have a lemonade. What? What are you on about? Oh, you're not the Tom we used to... You've, you've changed and all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of my vices come like, are connected with how just over the years I've... Uh, I've, they become sort of crutches yeah. during social interactions. Yeah, I think I had it slightly easier because I never drank. Did you never want to? Or Not hugely, no. I mean, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, uh-huh. my mum was sick 
the idea of being out of control was never appealing because of that. Right. Uh, I was deeply unpopular at high school, so I missed out on that kind of early drinking experience by being uh, ostracized. Right. Or people would try to trick me into drinking at that age. They'd sort of spike my drink or whatever, so it always felt like something to avoid. Wow. And yeah. then by the time I got into university, I think I, I had seen... I, I was so thrilled to be free and to be liked and to suddenly realise that I wasn't a good person. Because for, for years I thought I was the per- You know how you meet some people who make you feel a bit uncomfortable and they put the hackles up? I thought I was that. That's what I thought. I thought I was sort of just an unpleasant person to be around. Right. With the exception of my brother and his friends who kind of kept me a little bit sane because they were nice to me. Mm-hmm. But it could have just been because they liked my brother. Yeah, right, exactly. That's a, I can see how you can... Yeah, and so getting to university felt so freeing and so enjoyable and so pleasurable just to have normal experiences that I didn't feel the need to drink. And then it was too late. Surely when you arrived at university, though, you had the idea that, no, I'm disgusting and people aren't going to like me. There must have been a moment when... There there was, and I remember Andrew Garrick, uh, who went to my brother's school, and I'd seen him around. We didn't know each other. There There was a sort of a an Oscars party or something at the yeah. Manning Bar, which was the, which was the student bar. Everyone was chatting. The official events drew to a close. And they, uh, the people who I was sort of in a space with said, oh, let's go somewhere else for a drink. And Andrew Garrick turned to me and said, you should come. And oh, I wow. went, oh, no, it doesn't matter. And he said, no, you seem like a really cool person. Come and chat with us. And it genuinely changed my life wow it was this moment of oh they don't know (laughs) 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 i'll always be grateful to him we were never ever close friends i always feel like a great sense of i'm joking yeah that joking that was just a nice guy who saw a girl who could really use with someone saying that i I don't know if he knew what that meant to me really yeah maybe i think he just thought i was a cool person like i'd said something funny or he was just a nice person who would have said that to any first year in his group. Or I genuinely nice. don't know and I've never asked because it sort of doesn't matter. It changed, but it, gen- it truly, truly changed my wow. whole idea of myself and who I was in the world. And, and uh, it was a small gesture, but it, it meant a huge amount. Mm. Um, yeah, so I was just so excited that I didn't feel like I needed to drink. And then I got too old to make those mistakes. <laughs> Like, I yeah, can't sure. be throwing up in a toilet at this age, <laughs> like... No, it's, um, no, it's not good. I, um... You hopefully do get to an age where you do... The appeal of getting drunk is not is no longer the, the appeal. Mm. I, I was over in New Zealand doing the comedy festival this year. And one of the bar girls was, like, trying to get everyone shots and shots and shots. It was like... I remember one time I asked for like a gin and tonic and then she gave me a quadruple gin and tonic without me asking. It was like, mate, I just want a gin and tonic. I'm not drinking now to get drunk. <laughs> and she just looked at me and was like, what? But that's the plan. That's what you do. That's why you have alcohol. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not me anymore. I can't do it. No, it's not the game. I had quite a bad experience at New Zealand uh, Comedy Festival. I've only been there once. I'll have to go back at some point. Oh, well. But, um, yeah, just not, 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 no, not big audiences. And then at one point, um, 
two somewhat senior comedians whose names I will tell you later <laughs> sort of cornered me in a bar and both of them were kind of trying to fill me up. Oh, wow. Uh, it wasn't personal in that I knew it wasn't personal because I slipped away and when I came back they were doing it to another girl. Yeah. At which point I told her boss <laughs> right. that she was in a corner. I'm not sure that makes it any better. <laughs> no. But... It actually makes it worse. Yeah, I think it might be. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, I think um, I, I've i seen a lot of that sort of... With the whole Me Too things all coming out recently, having been to an all-boys boarding school and not having any real interactions with girls going through. So I've I've witnessed what that segregation can do and and I've seen my um, you know, people who went to my school do some horrendous things and really not understand and you know you know I've not been perfect in my in, in my life either you know I've definitely put I, I know I put women in uncomfortable situations when I was sort of like coming out of that boarding school environment just because you so the, every two weeks we get put on a bus and we get driven two hours to the neighbouring girls' school and put in a sports hall and you'd have a three-hour-long social. Oh, God. And that would be two hours and 40 minutes of the boys on one side and the girls on the other side pointing at each other. <laughs> then the last 20 minutes would just be <laughs> like a battle, just people just you know <laughs> going at each other. And then you'd leave and you wouldn't see them again for two weeks. And that's pretty much all the interaction we had. And then obviously I went home and I was just on an army barracks. Um, so when I was 17 years old, my school went co-ed for the first time. Oh dear. A school of 700 boys. They let 22 girls join my year. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. Poor everyone. Poor everyone. Oh, poor uh, exa- boys, poor girls, poor yeah, teachers. Exactly. So. Poor parents. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so you can imagine what it was like. I, I always imagine it. Like, have you ever seen Jurassic Park? <laughs> and the dinosaurs are now out. But, um. So firstly, you'd think the guys would be like, yeah, girls, we get, to see, we get girls to be here, that's going to be great, you know, we get to snog them and stuff. Actually, all the guys were, because we all had our hierarchies, and it was, we were set, and they were going to ruin it all, and a lot of the people at the top of the hierarchies were the guys who wouldn't be very good with girls, so they would go lower down the hierarchies. So actually, we tried to complain and not get them to come. The term before they arrived, um, some of the older boys broke into a farmer's field, stole some cows, then put them in the assembly hall and spray-painted no cows allowed. And that was like, this is the rebellion. And we thought they were all going to ruin rugby for us. And then... How would they ruin rugby? Because the people good at rugby would get distracted by the girls and they wouldn't focus on rugby. Amazing. It's, it's insane, isn't it? And it reminds so, me of when I did the arts review. The first year I did the arts review at Sydney University, um, we asked what the hiring, what the you know casting process was after we got cast, and there was sort of a number of women and more boys. <laughs> and they said, "No fatties, no argos." It was meant to be a compliment, but was in fact an insult. Yeah, because we weren't being cast for our comedic talent. <laughs> no fatties, no argos. Yeah, that's um, yeah. Feels like exactly the same vibe. Yeah, it is that sort of vibe. 
we get the the teachers were so scared that one of the girls would get pregnant in the first term because imagine the press on that no, this single gendered school goes co-ed and now there's 17 miscarriages. It'd be awful. <laughs> so they introduced this thing called the six-inch rule. And so you weren't, you weren't allowed within six inches of a girl. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, insert joke there. Oh, God. Um, but what that means is that you can then, you can't ever treat the girls like a friend or a person. They're this thing you're not allowed to be close to. And whenever we did try and sort of, you know, in the common rooms and stuff, they'd be like, don't be seen together, you can't be seen together, you're representing the school. So what that meant was that the boys and girls who did try and get together would have to sneak off and go to private places to get away with it, which meant we had more sex than we actually would have done if they had just let it naturally happen. Yeah. So it was the... I get where their motivation came from, but it was the most miscalculated thing ever. That's astonishing. Yeah. It's like the first fleet into Australia. Right. That's the proportions, basically. Yeah. Second Fleet was better. The women formed cartels and started brothels. Interesting fact. Did they? Um, Where can people find you online? I could Uh, talk to you all afternoon, but I know you have to go and do more. I do. um, I'm at Honourable Tom. At Honourable Tom. Honourable Tom on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And is that Honourable spelled the English way or the American way? Uh, H-O-N-O-U-R-B-L-E. Honourable. Yes. Brilliant. Honourable Tom, uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you very much. It's been lovely. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. 
Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lolly rifle, doll, lolly rifle, day.